and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. At one time, a child's most feared words were, wait till your father gets home. Discipline from dad meant less mercy and more punishment, but God has a different approach. Teaching team member Jeff Norris brings us this message entitled, Alive, Raised, and Seated, which covers Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. For more information and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Father, thank you for the opportunity that we have each week to open your word. And Father, may we listen well to your spirit this morning. We ask that you would soften hearts. We ask that you would open ears to hear. Would you open our eyes to see, the eyes of our hearts, to see and comprehend the beauty of your gospel. Father, as we pray each week, would you just use me and others who preach up here Caleb and Bob and Randy, Lord, just use us as your vessel. We don't want to get in the way of what you would have your people hear about you this morning. So use me, Lord, for your glory. Speak to us, we pray, and we thank you for how you'll do that. In Jesus' name, amen. So I have a vivid memory. I feel like I share a lot of my stories of when I was a kid. Y'all are like, dude, do you really remember that much from, from when you were a kid? And uh, weirdly, yes. Like my wife, Rachel, tells me all the time, she's like, how do you remember all that? And I'm like, I don't know. Maybe I've just made it up over the years, but I think it's real. I think it's true. <laughs> but I had this vivid memory as a kid of a really bad day that I had. But it didn't start bad. It was a summer day. And uh, I, I guess my mom had gotten to the point where she couldn't figure out uh, what else to do to keep my sister and I entertained for the summer. It was probably about this time in the summer. And so she wakes me up and she tells me, um, Jeff, we're going to have a fun outing today. So I get excited. So, okay, sounds fun. And she says, I'm going to take you and my best friend. I'm going to take, and I'm waiting with in- baited anticipation, what's she going to say? She says, I'm going to take you to an old house in town, and we're gonna take a tour of it and learn about the history of the house. And that's when it became a bad day. I was like, wait, what? I don't wanna do that. She said, well, you've, I've already scheduled it. Miss so-and-so is waiting for us to be there. It's, it's a done deal. Okay. So I go with a bad attitude. My friend's with me. We get to the house. And there's this older lady, sweet as she can be, who owns the house, and she's giving us a tour, and it wasn't long before we turned into complete terrors. Uh, We were running into rooms that we weren't supposed to. We were touching things that we weren't supposed to. We were mumbling things under our breath. We were laughing. We were making bodily noises, some fake and some real. And it it was just awful. I can remember knowing what I was doing and knowing that I am totally sabotaging what my mom has put together. I can see both the older lady and my mom getting more and more agitated and frustrated until it culminated in this point right here where my mom finally pulls me to the side 
and she whispers something in my ear that every kid dreads. And when she whispered it in my ear, I can remember my heart sinking, the hair standing up on the back of my neck and my knees buckling. And this is what she whispered. When your dad gets home later today, you will be getting a spanking. And my bad day got really bad. It got worse. It got dark. Everything within my mind went into panic mode. And I don't remember what else happened at that house. What I remember is by the time we got home, it was just after lunch and the rest of the day was ruined. All I could think is my friend and I went to the pool and I couldn't enjoy being at the pool because all I could think about was the wrath that was coming. Uh, we, then we come back and we play some video games and I can't enjoy the video games because I know what's coming around 5.30 and we end up the day in the front yard and we're playing games and baseball and whatever else and I can't enjoy it because every time a car comes by, I begin praying, oh God, please, not let that be that. please don't let that be my dad. And around 5.30, sure enough, he pulls into the driveway and I know I'm about to die. He gets out of the car. He says, Jeff, come here. It's time for my friend to go home. It's time to take care of business. He calls me over. He takes me up to my room. He explains to me what, why I'm getting a spanking. He does it in the best way possible. And then he spanks me. Now listen, I got to make a caveat statement here. I'm not making a definitive theological statement on spanking, Okay. If you don't spank your kids, that's totally fine. I'm not saying you should or shouldn't. I'm just telling you my story, okay? Don't send me an email. Um, <laughs> and my dad, he does what dads do. He lovingly disciplines me, and I learn a great lesson. But I got to thinking about it this week. As I was remembering that story, I got to thinking about what, what if the story had ended a little differently? What if it didn't go the way that I was assuming it would go? What if I was in the yard dreading like crazy what, was, what I knew I deserved? I knew I deserved it. I knew what I was doing all along, and I knew that I deserved to be disciplined. But what if my dad showed up, and he said, Jeff, come here, and he sent my friend home up to his house, and he took me up to his room, and he said, son, you know that I love you. And because I love you, this time I want to do something a little different. And I watched him with no more words stand up and take the vessel of wrath, a wooden kitchen spoon, and turn it upon himself instead of me and begin whipping him, not me. I would be confused, it would be stunning. I would probably start yelling, Dad, stop, what are you doing? But eventually, he would take me up in his arms and he would say, I wanted to take your punishment for you. Receive it with gladness. And a horrible, no good, bad day would have immediately 
turn into a great day because of the love of my Father. That's kind of the story of the gospel. I want to be very clear about my intentions this morning. If you are with us this morning and you're a guest and, and church is typically not your thing, I, I have you in mind primarily this morning. And I have you in mind because I have talked to a lot of people over the course of 17 years of being in ministry who have for long, long periods of time, if not their whole life, greatly misunderstood church and Christianity. Even those who have identified as Christians, who have said, I'm a Christian. Of course I'm a Christian. I was baptized in the church. That makes me a Christian. Whatever it is that causes you to identify as a Christian, as questions are asked and as we continue to kind of think about what is it all about, it becomes very clear that there's a great fundamental misunderstanding of what Christianity is. And at the core of Christianity... At the core of this whole God thing is what we call the gospel. And so I want to make abundantly clear this morning through a text in Scripture what the story of the gospel is. If you are in a place this morning where you're a normal attender with us or you are a consistent attender or member at another church and you say, okay, I know the gospel, I know the story, I understand, I haven't misunderstood, I would plead with you to not disengage because here's why it's so good for the Christian and for the typical churchgoer to continue to hear the story of the gospel. When we do that, it causes us to remember and to be refreshed on how amazing God is and all of his love and his mercy and grace for us in such a way that it reignites and refreshes a new energy, a new zeal for worship and devotion to him. And so whether you, wherever you are on the spectrum, whether this is the first time that you've walked into a church or maybe it's the thousandth time that you've walked in, wherever you are on the spectrum, would you listen this morning to the story of the gospel that comes to us from Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Let's read it together. Ephesians chapter 2. If you have your Bible, turn there. If you don't, it's totally fine. It'll be on the screens. You also have it printed in your bulletin on the insert there on the back page of your notes. This is what it says, verse one. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the, ma the rest of mankind. I want to pause there. And I just want to simply say if the verse, if this passage ended there, this would be the worst news ever. This would be what we would very just simply call, very understated way, bad news. Gospel means good news. That's literally what it means, good news. But it's important for us to remember that in order for something to be good news, there has to be bad news. Otherwise, it's just news. If there's not an understanding of bad news first, 
And then you walk up and deliver some type of news that you understand to be good, but the person hearing doesn't know that bad news. They just say, okay, well, that's good. In other words, if you were to walk up to someone on the streets who has no understanding of what these three verses have just told us, we're about to look through them again, and you just walked up to him and said, hey, man, Jesus loves you. Great. There's no background or understanding as to why that's significant or as to why that's such incredibly good news. So for the first little bit that we're together this morning, I want to hammer in on, I want to zoom in on the bad news, but I want you to stay with me, okay, because it doesn't end there. And there's a whole other part of this passage, but we have to start with the first three verses. And, and so in light of one of my favorite books is growing up as a kid, do y'all remember Alexander's Terrible, what is it? Terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day, right? This is the first point I want you to get. When it comes to our spiritual life and existence, there is terrible, horrible, no good, very bad news. And that's what these first three verses are summarizing for us. Listen to what it says again, verse, verse uh, one. And you were, here's the key word, The key word of the first three verses, and you were dead in the trespasses of your sins in which you once walked. The reason that's a key word is because it gets down to the essence of the human problem. The fundamental, the core issue of the human problem is not that we're wrong and need to be made right or become right. It's not that we're bad and need to be good. The fundamental human problem is that we are, spiritually speaking, we are dead and need to be made alive. Now, Randy's going to talk more about this next week, so I'm not going to go into great detail. I'd love for you, if you're a guest with us, to come back next week as he will go into more detail about Genesis 3, about when sin came into the world and when death spiritually came to all mankind. And when sin came into the world, we died with Adam and Eve in the garden. Listen, don't miss this. According to the scriptures, you and I are not sinful because of what we do. We are sinful because that's who we are by our nature. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned and chose their own glory and their own story over the glory and the story that God had written, and they rebelled against God, we were then at that point born into their sin nature, meaning from there on out, every offspring of humanity was born with a sinful nature, meaning that we are predisposed within our nature to reject everything from God. The scriptures say there is no one who desires God. There is no one who is good. No, not one. There is no one who desires righteousness. And what this means is it doesn't mean that humans are now incapable of doing outwardly morally good things. We can do good works. We can help people. We can serve homeless shelters, kindness, all these things. It means from a spiritual standpoint, meaning in our relationship with God, all of our good works, anything that we try to attempt to do that might be good is is still considered filthy rags before God because it's all tainted by sin. There's not one thing that we can do, say, think, anything that is not tainted and twisted and marred by sin. 
And so God is holy. And holiness means perfection, but it even means more than that. It, it means perfection, it means sinless, but it also means unique, set apart, other. There is no one like God. He created man and woman in his image, but we are not like him. He is so far beyond us. He is incomprehensible in so many ways. He is immeasurable. He is eternal. He is infinite. He is all-knowing. He is all-powerful. Everything about God is so far beyond us that we, in the finite beings that we are, cannot fully comprehend the immensity of his infinity, the greatness of his existence. And the only way, here's the thing, he created us to be with him in perfect unity. And it all fell apart when we, and I say we, you say, well, that was Adam and Eve. It's us. We would have done the same thing. We're born into the same nature. And we live our lives in such a way at the core heart level where we say, I don't want you or your way, God. I want mine. And because of that sin nature within us that expresses this rebellion towards God at the heart level, we die spiritually. We cannot be with a holy God, sinless and set apart, as people tainted by sin. And so the news is not just bad, it's horrible. Listen to what he says, some of the explanations that the Apostle Paul gives as he writes in the power of the Holy Spirit. He says in verse two, he says that we followed, let me just read verse one again, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, meaning what makes sense to us is not the things of God, but the things of this world in rebellion to God. Listen to this, following the prince of the power of the air. That's a fancy description of the enemy, of Satan, the devil. I can remember when I was in college and I was wrestling with this. I can remember reading that and being stunned because what the Apostle Paul is calling me is a follower of Satan if I don't follow Jesus. And that's offensive. One of the things you begin to see as you read the scriptures more and more is that in this game of life and existence here on this earth, there are only two teams. There is team Jesus and there is team Satan and there are no stands and everyone is playing. And we are by default on the team of the enemy because it's our nature to side with him whether we know it or not. We may not consciously ever say, hey, I'm a follower of Satan, but that's the disposition of our hearts is to reject God and so that therefore we're on that team. This is who we are in the bad news of the gospel story. It says that we follow the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of dis disobedience. Verse three, among whom we all, there is no Exception. Even the best of morally good people fall into this category. And that's hard for us to understand sometimes. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and don't miss this, and we're by nature, remember I've been talking about our nature, our sin nature, and by nature, children 
and this is hard, of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Something that we have to come to grips with about God is God being holy, he's also just. He is a just God, he is a fair God, meaning if he is going to remain holy and pure, then he must punish sin. And so the scriptures talk about the wrath of God against sin. And like my day started bad and got worse, the news starts bad and gets worse. And if we stopped there and I said, let's pray. Thanks for coming today. You'd be like, man, that was the worst sermon I've ever heard in my life. I don't want to ever go to church again. All they talk about is how I'm a sinner and how I need to get my act together. I better start trying harder to get right with God. But listen to what the rest of the passage says because it doesn't say that at all. What the passage gives us, and this is the second point, is it gives us, and I don't remember what words I use, so I need to look at the screen. We got it? Not the verse, the next one. The second point, I'll look on my notes. <laughs> the wonderful, magnificent, gloriously good news. Listen to verse four. But God. Now, in some ways, I could say, let's pray and go home. Those are two of the most beautiful words you will ever find in Scripture. We are dead in the trespasses of our sin. We are by nature children of wrath. There is no hope but God. He interjects. He intercedes. He condescends to us. And look what happens. But God, being rich in mercy... And with the great love with which he has loved us, even, don't miss this, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. What can dead people do? I mean, literally, think of it in the physical realm. What can dead people do? Nothing. When we physically die, we are dead. We lay there dead. It doesn't matter if in some way we wanted to be alive in our deadness. We couldn't make it happen. We're dead. The same is true spiritually. And the reason the Apostle Paul is using these words is so that we can kind of connect those dots between the physical realm and the spiritual realm. That if you're dead physically, you have no ability, no hope to save yourself and to make yourself alive. In the same way, because of our sin, that is true spiritually. But God. But God, being rich in mercy and with the great love with which, which he has loved us, has made us alive, even when we were dead, in the midst of our deadness. He's made us alive together with Christ. The song we sang earlier, 
and you called my name and I ran out of the grave. He awakens us to his glory. And he does it through the proclamation of the good news of the mercy and the love of God through the work of Jesus. And it's all by grace. So here's what happens. There's only one way that you can restore right relationship with God. There's only one way that you and I can rectify this sin problem and be with God for all of eternity and restore unto what was what was marred and destroyed in the Garden of Eden because of sin, there's only one way that we can get that back. And it's that you and I have to be perfect. Never sin and not have a sin nature. Well, I've already told you that's not possible. But there is another way. And the other way that the scriptures lay out for us over and over and over again is that there was one who came to do what we could not do. There is one who came who could achieve the standard for us. If the standard is perfection, no sin nature, and sinlessness both in thought, motive, deed, everything, there is one, and his name is Jesus. And he came and he did what you and I could not do by achieving the perfect standard for us in our place. But the story doesn't end there. Because God is just, and sin must be punished. There must be justice upon sin. The most beautiful part of the story, the most glorious part of the story is that Jesus in his perfection, in his holiness, went and took our place on the cross. He took the punishment that you and I deserve. And he was fully our substitute, not just in his life that he lived in perfection, but in the death that he died. He basically said, Father, put it all on me. The sins of all them, the warranted, uh, the warranted wrath that is on their heads, put it on my head. And on that cross, he received and shouldered the sins of his people. Swapping places with them to say, I am the Lamb of God, the sacrifice for the sins of the world. If that weren't enough, and it wouldn't matter if the last thing didn't happen, he then defeated the very penalty of sin itself, which is death. And being God in the flesh, he resurrected over the penalty of sin, and then he made this proposition to us. He said, if you will believe upon me, then the transfer will happen. You will receive forgiveness of sins. You will actually be seen by God if your faith is in me as your substitute. God the Father will now look at you and he will see my perfection, my righteousness, my holiness because your sin has been laid upon me and your righteousness, the, uh, Christ's righteousness has been laid upon you. Listen to what the rest of the text says. It says, even when we were dead, verse five, in the trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So he didn't just make us alive. He raised us up to newness of life and past tense. Listen to this. It's as good as done. God is outside space and time, so he looks at you now as a follower of Jesus by faith in the substitution of Jesus, 
and he looks at you and in his mind, you are as good as already seated next to him in heaven because the work is finished so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Look at verses eight and nine. Memorize these if you haven't already because they are the essence of the truth of the good news of the gospel. Verse eight, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. I want you to get a clear understanding quickly here of what grace is. Grace is you and I getting what we don't deserve. We don't earn it. There's nothing we can do to get it. It's simply something that God grants because he is gracious. Now, I want to be a little bit more clear with what I said. It's not just something that you and I, grace is not just something that you and I get that we don't deserve. It is actually more specifically the exact opposite of what we do deserve. Remember, because of our sin, we deserve wrath, but we get the exact opposite through faith in Jesus, which is acceptance, approval, love, relationship, restoration, righteousness. Everything that is Jesus is now in us. Eternal life. It's kind of like if you were back in school, let's just say you're in college, and you haven't gone to one class in this particular class. You haven't studied a day and you've missed all the tests and all the assignments. But your teacher has let it be known, your professor has let it be known that the final exam, if you pass it, will count for your entire grade. So all of a sudden you care and you show up for the final exam, but because you have studied nothing and because you know nothing of the material of the class, you sit down and the test is placed before you and you cannot answer one question. Now, don't ask me why, because it's an illustration, so don't get too literal with it. You put your name on it, and you turn it in, and it's blank. A couple days later, you check to see what you made on the final exam, and next to your name, it says 100A+, and you go, okay, this has to be a mistake. You haven't had a conscience all semester, but suddenly you develop a conscience, and you go to your professor. And you show up at his office and you say, or her office, and you stand before them and you say, hey, I just want to set the record straight. I turned in a blank test. I should have gotten a zero. And the professor says, I know. And you say, no, no, I don't think you understand. Like I, I, I earned a zero. I did nothing, but you're giving me 100. This has to be a mistake. And he says, no, no, no. You say, would you please explain to me what's going on? And he just looks at you and he says to you, I just, just want you to know I took the test for you. You get 100. You say, I don't understand. And he just says, look, it's grace. Take it. Most of us think, though, here's our problem. Most of us think that in this whole life, spiritual Christianity, God thing, that we're at about a 60 or 70. I'm probably right below failing, but I've been pretty good. And I've earned a decent grade, maybe even possibly a passing grade. If I die right now, I might go to heaven because, you know, I've been pretty good. And so I'm hanging around the C mark. 
And this whole Jesus thing, if I really need him, I, okay, I'll put my faith in Jesus and then I'll be assured of a 75, but I better spend the rest of my life busting my tail to show that I was worthy of the grade that he gave me of passing. And if I don't do it well enough, then I'll drop back down below and the work of Jesus won't really matter because I can't get my act together. But the gospel actually says it's actually way worse than you think it is and at the same time way better than you think it is. The worst part is that you're not at a 60 or 70. Let me just be honest, we're all at zero. We can't do it. But the great news is faith in Jesus doesn't just get you to a 70. It gives you 100 A plus perfection and it keeps you there. And you may be thinking right now, so then why do you live for Jesus? Look at verse 10. If that's true, it seems too easy, right? Verse 10 is this. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I'm almost out of time. I want to honor your time, but I want to simply say this. The reason the follower of Jesus begins to live a life that glorifies him is not in an effort to win the love and favor of God. The reason that the follower of Jesus begins to live a life that glorifies and honors him in obedience to him is because we have already gotten the love and the favor of God through Jesus, fully and completely, 100 A+. And he puts his spirit within us and it changes us. And so this whole gospel Christianity Jesus thing is not about get your act together and try harder. And if you can do it good enough, you might get in on the final day. It's all about that the work is finished and you get to rest in the finished work of Jesus. Let him change your heart and you actually begin to love God, not be afraid of him. And walk in newness of life. What about you? Have you misunderstood church for a long time? Have you thought it's all about you getting your act together? Have you missed the wonderful, glorious, good news of Jesus? If you think you have, we'd love to talk to you more. We'd love to invite you into a relationship with us where we help you understand more and more about this crazy good news. Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for your word that teaches us the glorious good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The work is finished. The call upon us is simply to believe in the finished work. The life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, we just believe and say, yes, you did it for me. Would you make me alive? I don't want to be dead any longer, Lord, to you and who you are. I want to be alive. And I long for you, God, to place your spirit within me that I would be changed from the inside out. To love and worship you, not because I'm afraid what you'll do to me if I don't, but because it's all finished. It's done. I get to worship you. And I get to live for you. Give understanding to us this morning. Open our eyes. We love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? Let's sing together. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. 
Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day. Thank you.